0: this little book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart. Um, In seminary, I was taking a biblical interpretation class, hermeneutics class, and I hated the class. I just thought it was the dumbest thing I had ever been a part of. So I asked a different professor at our seminary, you know, what book can I read to supplement this? And this is the one he recommended, and it changed the way I read the Bible, and it got me on this track of pursuing hermeneutics as a discipline, biblical interpretation. It's really simple, really clear. Now, they, there are some things that these guys say that, you know, I just have to disagree with. I think they're wrong on some things that they say in here. But if every Christian read this book and actually put it into practice and the way they read the Bible, Christianity in America would be like 10 times better, I think. So these guys are really, really helpful. Um, last week I talked a little bit about inerrancy and maybe you had some questions about, well, how did we get the Bible? How can we know it's true? There's this little book called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible by this guy Michael Bird. He writes really clearly and plainly. I've read through this a couple of times. It's really, really helpful. So, if you have those kind of questions, this guy's really good at that. So, the seven things are how the Bible was put together, what inspiration means, how the Bible is true, why the Bible needs to be rooted in history, why literal interpretation is not always the best interpretation, how the Bible gives us knowledge, faith, love, and hope, and how Jesus Christ is the center of the Bible. So, those are the seven chapters. Today, I'm going to talk about Bible translations. And there's this little book called How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth. So it's kind of in the For All It's Worth series. This book is really, really helpful. So if you want to have a strong opinion about Bible translations, this is the place to start. Um, we'll get into this a little bit more, but I think Christians have this penchant for having a ton of unearned confidence in their opinion about what the Bible, best Bible translation is. Um, and this book might help you at least legitimate some of your confidence or help you realize you need to chill out a little bit and there are things you need to think about when choosing a bible translation that that book's helpful we'll get into that in this lesson so this guy mark strauss the second guy is actually i think the main author for this I have, you know, when I was teaching my Bethlehem students about translation issues, this guy wrote a journal article that summarizes the content of this that's really, really good. And I would, I'd send that to anyone who wants that. I think non-academics can understand that article really well. Um, So if you don't want to read a whole book, I have a 25-page article I could send you with all of my highlights and underlines, so you can at least, identify what I thought was especially important. Um, We'll we'll get into translation issues here today. All right, so the first week I tried to essentially argue interpreting the Bible is hard, but possible, Um, and it can be done better or worse, but it takes work. It's not automatic. The Bible's not self-interpreting. Then last week, I tried to argue that the Bible is trustworthy and true in all that it affirms, but that doesn't mean that your interpretation is trustworthy and true. So the Bible's not self-interpreting. Just because the Bible's true doesn't mean that what you are interpreting the Bible to say is true. All right, that was basically last lesson. This lesson, I want to say, if we're going to read the Bible— and we're going to say things like the Bible is trustworthy and true, we have to actually work with a Bible. We have to get into the Bible and read it and use it. And if you're in the United States of America, we have a ton of Bible translations. So how should we think about translations? How should we use multiple of them if we should use multiple of them? These are the kinds of things we'll talk about today. But I want to start by asking, you know, you can just like pass if you don't want to say, But if you have a standard Bible translation that you generally use, um, what is it? Anyone want to? New American Standard Bible. I'll call that the NASB because it shortens it. Sometimes I say that and people don't know what I'm saying, but I'm just sounding out the acronym. All right, what else? ESV, okay. Um, ESV. ESV and King James. Okay. Anyone else want to say what they use? Another NASB? ESV in, the ESV in the message. Okay. All right. Yeah. Whatever we want to call it. We'll talk about those kinds of things, hopefully. Okay. Um, that's great. Uh, we generally preach out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, Um, But we've tried to make clear that we're happy for people to bring whatever translations they're using, and actually it might be helpful for you to look at a different one than the one we're using. Um, But it really is one of those tough things where you kind of have to pick one that you're going to generally use if you're going to be memorizing the Bible and getting familiar with it. Um, So... I'm, I'm a bit of a mess here. I, I, like, am thankful that God has given me the opportunity to do seminary so I can say something like, well, I just like to use the Greek New Testament instead of using an English translation, and then I can, like, work from there, you know, and, like, ideally, you know, if, if we were in an ideal world, all of us would have capacity and time and interests to learn biblical Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek really, really well, and just say, let's start with those texts. You know, it is way easier to teach out of the Greek text than it is out of an English Bible. When I teach for my seminary students, when I work through a passage, it is so much easier to go through a Greek text because you can automatically detect the challenges. Well, in the English text, you have to like explain a whole translation process and then try to talk to non-Greek train people something about greek or hebrew and then try to make a point so it's just you cut out the middleman of translation if you can just go into the ancient languages but that's not reality so we have to deal with what is and that means we have to deal with bible translations which they're also a gift so don't hear me saying anything negative about them all right i want to talk to you about bible translations oh man did i leave all of my notes upstairs that kind of sinks Josh, can you do me a favor? I think they're on my desk. It's that kind of graph-looking paper, and underneath it is printed out stuff from whenever I taught it last time, the stuff I sent you. Yeah, I need graph paper and the stuff under it, if you can find it. Okay. Um, Well, while Josh is going, I'll I'll just give some comments that I don't need any paper for. Um, Pastors are generalists okay, pastors are not specialists in anything, generally speaking, which makes a pastor's job really, really hard because pastors are expected to be specialists in every single area. So I want to give you a couple analogies. Your general practitioner, that doctor guy you go to, if you're one of those people who goes to the doctor, like he can only do so much for you, and then he's going to make referrals to other doctors. Now, some of this is because like you could cynically say, well, everyone's out to make a buck somehow, and there's like all sort of money to be made by having specialists in certain areas. But the other reality is, thank you so much, Josh, your general practitioner can't do everything. And we all know this. Um, A general contractor can oversee the construction of a building, but he's not a plumber or an electrician. Like he has to farm these things out. He might have some general knowledge, but if these guys are being honest, if your doctor's being honest, he's going to stay in his lane and admit when he is outside of his lane and refer you somewhere else. The problem is pastors don't have, generally, a scholar in residence for every sub-discipline of theology. We don't have an in-house systematic theologian. We don't have an in-house Greek specialist. So pastors just have to kind of find their way forward and draw on the best of what's out there and then try to give good guidance and tell you when we're out of our depth a little bit. Well, I don't know any pastors who are linguists. So when it comes to translation issues, a lot of what pastors or any other person says, we have to just realize are generalists who don't know enough to even know what we don't know. You know, after a lot of Greek and Hebrew classes, I have to say, I'm not a linguist. And so there's a lot that I just don't know. Now, I have a particular interest in these kinds of things, so in some of my PhD work, I've done further study. But it's, language is tough. So, everything that I'm about to say, I want to tell you, I'm saying as a generalist who is kind of a hobbyist in linguistics and hermeneutics, but I'm not a specialist there. I have some friends who have done specialist work there, and I try to say the kinds of things I'd say in front of you in front of those guys, because I know they'll like, make fun of me for being an idiot if I'm like, saying something that's way outside of my depth. So what I'm trying to tell you today, I think um, the specialists uh, would not say I'm being totally ignorant about, um, but you just have to know this is a really complex thing. All right, so I want to talk about uh, the necessity or purpose of a translation? You know, what would you say the necessity or the purpose of a translation is? Yeah, um, we don't, you know, non-seminary uh, trained people, and I'll tell you what, even most of us seminary trained people don't want to have to look at Greek or Hebrew when we open our Bible. We want to look at English. So that's one main goal of translations, is to get English in that book that we open up and call the Bible. Um, what? When, when you're talking to your neighbor who doesn't speak English, what's the main goal if you're wanting someone to translate for you? What, why, why would you want a translator to translate the words that your non-English speaking neighbor are saying into English? To communication. You want to arrive at what they intend to say. You want to arrive at meaning. So I want to argue for you, you know, or propose A good translation will be one that communicates the meaning of the text. All right, let that sit for a second. A good translation will be one that communicates the meaning of the text. Believe it or not, this is actually a pretty debated statement that I'm making, especially among like church people, Christians. And I am not trying to be negative or derogatory towards anyone in what I'm about to say. I'm just trying to be as clear as possible. Some people will say the goal of a, of a Bible translation is not clarity of meaning, but replicating as closely as possible the form of the Greek and Hebrew. So, what they're looking for is to try to preserve the word order of the Greek and Hebrew and to find one English word for every one Hebrew word, for every one Greek word. I want to say that's a really awful way of doing translation. It doesn't communicate meaning. Now, the, it gets worse, okay? Because what people will say is something like well, we've got these form based Bible translations, really wouldn't. And really mature Christians and godly Christians want that one. And then new Christians, they can have this one that's just focusing on meaning. But that's so problematic as soon as we talk about translation in language anywhere else. So let me give you a couple examples. I, I was forced to take Spanish for two years in high school and two years in college, and I hated it. But in Spanish, if you, if you learn another language, it will help you think about Bible translation. Uh, if you hear the phrase, como se llamo, you know, very literally, if we're going to go form-based kind of translation, that idea, you'd say, how yourself call. Is that a good translation, or is what is your name a good translation of como se llamo? That one's the better translation, because it communicates meaning. Um, uh, here's another one, Tiengo años. I think I'm getting the verbs right. I, if you know Spanish, I might be wrong. Tiengo años, is that right? Um, how many, it's like, how many years do you have? Well, that's a bad translation because what they're meaning is, how old are you? Do you see how just trying to find a one English word equivalent for a foreign language is actually not good translation? Good translation communicates meaning. Does this general point make sense? Julie? No, I'm saying what's good translation. Well, they don't need a translation as a thing. Now, if you talk to a dual language speaker, they're always going to say, we want the good translation side of this. We don't want like a one-for-one equation because it doesn't do justice to what I'm trying to communicate. Because if you say... Um, You know, como se llamo literally means how yourself call. Is that person, the Spanish speaker who's now learning English, going to understand what we just translated? No, because it's really bad English. You know, it it doesn't make any sense. Um, So that person isn't saying, yeah, that's what I intended to say is how yourself call. No, what I intended to say is what's your name, you know? So, when we start working with language, we're not looking for one to one glosses, we're looking for meaning. Did, did that answer your question? When they say, como se llamo, they're not hearing how you self call. No, they're hearing what's your name? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're hearing meaning, not uh, words, okay? Let me let me go further on this, because we need some basic linguistics here, all right? This is getting too complex. Um, there are some theories of language that are wrong, okay? One of them is that, there's that the f- shape and sound and look of a word communicates meaning by itself. So they'll say something like, um, the word gift has to always mean gift because of the way these letters are constructed. But that's, and then when you get to translation, we can see that's a really big problem because the German word, das Gift, is poison and you don't, you know, those letters don't actually contain any inherent meaning. They're just arbitrary letters that are strung together that we use as a vehicle for meaning. So no word by itself has any meaning, right? It has potential for meaning within a particular language system. Now, language systems are different. Because different language systems don't cut the world up. They don't understand the world in the same exact ways. So there's never a, really a one-for-one word equivalent that you can just plug in for a foreign language. Okay? So that's called the gloss method of translation. And it's very rudimentary and unhelpful. So some people might say, you know, there's a Greek word here, so let's find an English gloss, an English word that we can just parallel with that one. And that's actually the way beginning language students in Greek learn Greek. And that's not bad, but Greek teachers always say, I'm going to lie to you when I tell you that poieo means to make, you know, this verb to make. It it could mean that. Maybe we could even say that's its primary meaning. But the problem is, if you start to define words, there are lists of a bunch of possible definitions and none of them are a one word definition. So if we define the English word um, grace, we, we could um, have a bunch of different possible definitions. But the Hebrew word that we generally translate grace, charis, also has a bunch of different er, definitions. So we want to look at what are all the possible Greek definitions for charis, and in context, which one is the author using? Now, we have to like, think about, well, what English word best communicates that definition of that word? And sometimes it's grace, but not always. Because charis in Greek can also mean earning something. So we have to be careful about this idea that you can just always trans- plug and play an English word for a Greek word. Yeah, let, yeah, that's a good example. Um, let me hold on to that one, though, because that's a, a metaphor or a figure of speech. Uh, what I'm trying to say is when you start looking at language, we have to deal with the definition of the word in its context. And then we have to try to find the best English word and, and use that one. Now, there are some translations that will say we are a literal translation. We're giving the literal English gloss for that Greek word and they're lying to you. Okay? I say it a little brusquely like that, but it's not true. It's just not true. Okay, Let me read you a list. of So I, I use that illustration of poieto, this Greek verb that we could say literally means to make, we should actually just say a primary meaning in English of poieo is to make. Now, I want to read you a list of verses and give you the way that the NASB, N-A-S-B, would translate. I'm not hating on it, Julie. I'm just trying to help people understand what's meant and what's not meant when people say I use a literal translation. Um, It's just not consistent. So in Matthew 3.8, There's poieo, fruit, make fruit, while the NASB says bring forth fruit. Uh, So you can't just plug and play one word. Here's another example. Matthew 26, 18 is poieo, that verb Passover. So make Passover. Well, that just doesn't work. NASB translates it, keep Passover. So there's a whole list of about 25 of these with 25 different English words for poieo because everything the context shapes the meaning of words, and you can't just plug and play one English word for any other word. So they, they're, not plugging it, like they they're not in these instances, but in some instances they do, so it gets really confusing. And then in the preface, when they say we're as literal as possible, what people think is I'm getting a word for, and they'll talk about it being a word for word translation, which just is not true. All right, let me illustrate the problem even more of this form-based issue. None of them actually do what they're saying when they're saying we're literal word-for-word form-based because Greek and Hebrew don't follow a subject-verb-object-word order in the same way that English does. So in English, we're always going to say, John kicked the ball. We're never going to say, the ball kicked John and be able to make sense of it. But in Greek, you can have that arrangement and it actually might make a ton of sense. Uh, because of the way that uh, meaning is encoded in, in uh, Greek sentence constructions, okay? So let me read to you a literal word order um, from the Greek text using primary um, glosses. This is Matthew 6, 9. Uh, does anyone know what that is? In, in King James, our father, which are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This, this is the literal, like, ordering, the, the actual ordering. Father of us who in the heavens, no verb, um, be sanctified the name of you. So no one wants to read a Bible translation like that. So even the most literal form-based ones are, like, changing word order to put it into English ordering and supplying verbs that are implied in Greek, which is good translation. The problem is they often maintain a really woodenish way of doing that um, and don't communicate clear meaning. So what I'm trying to say is, as uh, we're looking at Bible translations, we should probably flip the script. If you've always heard, um, to be a mature Christian, you want to be using a literal tr- word-for-word translation, and immature Christians use functional or meaning-based or dynamic translations, um, that's that That should not be in your head. What should be in your head is the more form-based, the worse a translation it's going to be. The more functional-based, the better translation it will be. Now here's the catch with that. The more functional-based, the more interpretive decisions are already made and communicated in the text. It, I, I want to say that um, it's ambivalent because we have so many translations. And we'll get to how we use them. One of the ways we use them is we compare translations so we know what the interpretive difficulties are. Um, And that shows up best by comparing dynamic translations, not by comparing wooden translations. So if you compare the NASB and the King James, they're both pretty wooden and you're not actually gonna figure out what the interpretive issues are. You want to compare uh, the more dynamic ones with dynamic ones in with wooden ones but but let me let me keep going here um, when mm-hmm. I lost my train of thought that 's okay that 's just the way that these things work. Go ahead the, the new the past, I mean, oh, let me get into that, that really yeah we'll we'll get into that the further we go here um my point is though. That the more wooden it is, the worse of an actual communication of meaning is going on there. Um, but they serve a good purpose for certain issues, for certain things, okay? Now, I know I, I just asked who's using NASBY or King James, and I don't want to needlessly make anyone feel like they've been doing something wrong. But I want to say that NASBY is best for beginning Greek students because it helps them identify certain Greek constructs. So it helps them identify when a Greek participle is at play um, or a genitive or something like that, you know. The the NASB is helpful for beginning Greek students and, and people who know Greek because what they can then say is, okay, what are the five main options for how participles are used and how should I translate that? I think for people who are using NASB or King James, I would love to give you um, some hints in a different setting on some tools you could use so that when you see a phrase like the, um, uh, the kingdom of God, that would be a genitive phrase in Greek. Well, it could be an objective genitive or a subjective genitive or a possessive genitive. And if you don't know what those options are, all you're getting is a wooden translation and you're not, you don't have the equipment to think through, okay, what translation decision do I want to make here? Now, dynamic equivalents or functional equivalents, people can can read a phrase like that, like faithfulness of Christ, another one, you know, of these genitives. One translation might put Christ's faithfulness, you know, as in like the faithfulness that Christ embodies um, or or that he owns or something like that rather than the faithfulness that Christ gives to somebody else. These people can read different things and the decisions made for them. And I think that's good because would you rather have people with a bunch of PhDs and who are linguists making these decisions or people like me who don't really know or or people who have never thought about what all the options are? So, all I'm trying to say here is, I would like us to flip the script on the way we talk about formal translations being better for mature Christians and dynamic better for immature Christians. I want to say we should read for what best communicates meaning. Um, and generally, that will be a mediating translation if you're picking one. That's one reason why I like the CSB, because it's pretty mediating. I think like NIV 2011, pretty mediating. I think NLT is a really good daily reader Bible. Um, But you want to compare, if you're doing study and making a big interpretive decision, compare NLT with CSB and NASB, and then you'll know where the issues are. Now, comparing translations doesn't actually tell you how to solve the problem of an interpretive issue. So this is another thing I want to talk about. When we compare translations, most of us, I think if we're honest, will say, I'm picking that one because I like it better. Like it just feels right to me. And we're using no grammatical or exegetical or hermeneutical criteria for making that decision. What we're using is the way I feel about it. Now, on the one hand, there's no way to get around that. But on the other hand, that's a major problem. So using multiple translations makes us aware of the issues, but it doesn't tell us how to solve the problem. So what we have to do next then is to, if we want to make a decision, is we've got to pursue resources, whether that's your pastor or a commentary that will then outline the arguments for the different regular translations or something like that. But just knowing what the issues are doesn't give you grounds for making a decision. I know some people don't like to hear that because we want to be able to just go with our gut, but that's not how anything works. Um, You know, if you go on WebMD because you have a perpetual nosebleed and you learn it could be because you have like some blood disease where your blood is too thin or it could be because you just have this like, I don't know, vessel that pops all the time or like it might give you four or five options but you don't have the criteria to tell which one it is. It's like get in and see the doctor who actually can narrow these things down based on their expertise. Well that's true for Bible translations as well. I mean yeah so so we might say Hey, um, I really like John MacArthur, for example, and he took it this way, so I'm going to take it that way. Or I really like John Piper, and he disagrees with John MacArthur, but like, generally, I would think MacArthur's who I'd usually go with. But the way MacArthur or Piper put it really like got me. It moved me emotionally by interpreting it that way, so I'm going to go with that one. Well, we're necessarily text, but, like, what version of the Bible... oh, what version of the Bible they use? Um, Yeah, let me circle back to that. But, you know, when you go and you hear people, like, say their opinion, you want to listen, okay, what's the logic for their choice, not just their conclusion? So you'll hear sometimes in sermons, I'll tell you guys, I do not have the time to defend why I'm going with this translation, but I prefer the whatever, NIV, and I'll put it on the screen, or I'll give you my own translation. Sometimes we just don't have time for it. But if you're making a significant interpretive decision, you want to pull out the commentaries. You want to, and then probably talk with like one of your pastors who knows the broader literature as you work through that. We shouldn't just go with our gut. Now when it comes to picking a translation like you're saying, sometimes we'll say, I really respect that person and they love this translation. That's fine, but the person you really respect may have like a lot more um, language study to be able to navigate that translation in a better way than you do. So we can't just say, because it works really well for that person, I, I want to use it. Um, all right, let me keep going. Man, we're running out of time. Now I know why last time I did this, I did two lessons on Bible translation, because there's so much here. Um, there are a lot of issues that Bible translators have to wrestle through, and we should not be hypercritical of them for the decisions they make. Um, so, some, the, you know, people's favorite thing to do is to, like, critique Bible translators, which is the worst thing to do because we don't, we shouldn't. There are really legitimately difficult things to know how to translate, like figures of speech, for example. This is what Ben was kind of trying to get at. Um, how do you translate a figure of speech when we don't have that figure of speech in English? and when like figures of speech all don't line up perfectly. They don't map onto each other perfectly. So one figure of speech in Greek or Hebrew may have like a range of meaning and the closest English figure of speech we can get to covers like 75% of that. But then a different one covers like 80%, but also that one has implications for things that are totally opposite of what the Greek one is. Like it's hard to pick the right ones. And some of them are easier than others. Um, What's most unhelpful, I think, is when these wooden translations don't indicate that a figure of speech is in play. So, for example, there's this prophecy of judgment on Israel where God says that he's going to give them cleanness of teeth. Well, that's a figure of speech that we don't use because cleanness of teeth in our language is a really good thing. Like if you have clean teeth, you're like more attractive than the person who doesn't have clean teeth. Well, cleanness of teeth in King James or New American Standard Bible actually means, I'm going to starve you. Like, I'm, I'm not going to give you any food. Because that's what the metaphor means. So what should we do in English? Should we try to be woodenly, word for word, which is impossible, but should we try to preserve that? Or should we try to get the best metaphor to do the job? I want to say... Um, We should try to use a metaphor there and not just non-metaphorical language. So we could use non-metaphorical language of, I'm going to deprive you from food. But there's a reason the author is using metaphorical language. So what's our best metaphor for starving somebody? Um, I, I think the best one might be, you know, this is my opinion. I'm going to run you out of house and home. I think that's a really good metaphor especially because this prophecy is an an exilic context. So it even like goes with the grain of the prophecy. But I can hear someone objecting saying, well, that just sounds like too common language. Like I'm going to, you know, drive you out of house and home or, you know, your enemies will eat you out of house and home. I think that's the best way to put it maybe. Um, It just sounds normal. And that's my point. I think our Bible translations should sound normal. They should be in spoken English, right? Yeah, that's 100%. Metaphors, figures of speech, attitudes towards certain things change over time, so we have to update. Now, there are other reasons translations get updated all the time, you know, outside of honorable ones. Sometimes it's so we can, we need some more income, so we're going to do a major overhaul Um, and that's a motivating factor, (laughs) you know, and hopefully, like, the good things will come out of it, too, because they're also going to address real problems. So a lot of these updates, very little things are changed, but you need the most updated edition, right? Um, But our attitudes change towards things. So I started reading this really delightful essay by this guy, David Foster Wallace, called Consider the Lobster. He's doing this journalistic thing at this lobster festival on the East Coast. And he starts out by talking about how the earliest New England settlers um, were disgusted by lobster. And in fact, when like a storm would come up and like the shores would be covered with lobsters, they'd grind them up and use them as fertilizer. And the lobster was thought to be so disgusting that there was actually laws passed for the fair treatment of criminals who were in prison that they couldn't be fed lobster more than once a week. Uh, because it was just this, like, really grody but easy-to-access source of protein. But it was just despicable. Well, our attitude towards lobster, if, if you're going out and buying lobster and grinding it up to fertilize your garden, anyone nowadays is going to say there's something wrong with you. Like, cook that thing. It's a delicacy. Uh, so the, our attitudes, even within our short 200-year history, changes radically. Like, whole businesses are now on seafood, surf and turf, you know? Like, so we've got to think about that as we look at translation. Um, you know, we've got the problem of cultural specification. How do we uh, translate monetary values? This is a tough one, because if we just use the Greek or Hebrew money value, it means nothing to us, you know? So we could use a current equivalent value, or we use a conceptually equivalent value, a day's wages. You know, I think that might be the best one, but these things are tough. Um, the final main thing I want to address, we're gonna do another lesson on translations next week, okay, because this, ac- this is actually a big deal, uh, because this is a, if we're saying we're gonna spend a lot of time interpreting this thing, we need to think about what, what we're grabbing onto. I grew up in a King James-only world, and it wasn't until my sophomore year of college that I broke away from that by reading the New King James, which was, like, thought to be an awful translation and only, like, immature Christians would use this or something like that. Um, And then eventually I started reading the ESV. So at first I thought the issue was just what's more readable. But then with the King James issue, I learned that actually it's a bigger deal. It's what are the manuscripts that are behind that Greek, that English translation. So for the King James, they only had like nine or 11 Greek manuscripts that they were using and they were not the best manuscripts. Well, now we have over 5,000 manuscripts. So like we have better Greek texts to translate from. So that's a whole issue that if you're interested in, I'd be happy to address. There's this guy named Mark Ward who wrote a book called Authorize the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. If you're interested, he does the best job of anyone on addressing that. Um, But what I want to say is within all of those arguments, what I came to realize is that um, a lot of the people I knew didn't care about the Greek text underneath it. They didn't even really care or believe that the 1611 translators had this special gift from God to come up with the one English translation for all time. You know, most King James-only people don't actually believe that because they're not using the 1611 edition, and they're certainly not reading the Apocrypha that was in the 1611 edition of the King James. What I came to find is that when it comes to Bible translations, a lot of people just want a text that feels a little bit foreign and a little bit holy. Um, they want a text that feels like God is speaking it, so they don't want it in the common vernacular, the common language that people use. I want to say that, on the one hand, I think there's something right about that. There's there's a reverence for the Bible that people could take a dose of and benefit from in that attitude. Um, there's a sense of distanciation, distancing ourselves, saying yeah, this text wasn't written first for me. It was first written to other people, but it has enduring relevance for me. And it's been around for a long time. And when I read the Bible, I need to read it as an outsider coming in. Like this, this is God's word. So there's a lot that I want to affirm about that. But what I want to disagree with is that it should feel that way. Um, the, the biblical text did not feel that way to the people who got it. I want to make two arguments for why we should have Bible translations in English that feel like uh, the English we use to communicate. Um, And, you know, genre appropriately. It should feel like the way we tell stories or the way poetry sounds or um, the way a sharp rebuke would sound. We should use conventional English for, I think, at least two reasons. Um, I I might have time for a third. The first is especially as it relates to the New Testament, but in Hebrew as well, it was just the the common language of the day that these texts were written in. They could have, they had options to write it in a different way but they used what's called Koine Greek or Common Greek. Um, this is like blue-collar Greek. Blue-collar English is our equivalent. So this is what was spoken in the pubs of their day. This is what shopping lists were written in. This is how people just talked on the average. It wasn't the Queen's English, okay? Um, and even, I'd argue that the King James Version, that was the like blue-collar English of that day. It just feels regal to us because we've developed over time. But the Bible was given in the common language of the day, so I think we should preserve the way that God did that in our translations by using common language, common English, all right? Now we have these challenges because there are a bunch of sub-dialects, okay? Uh, So there's standard written English that's like kind of hoity-toity, never end in a preposition, you know, that kind of thing. I think that's fine for that. But I think our Bibles should be in our common spoken English. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I think you've got to have regional specific link Bible translations. I think that's the best. Now, now we don't all have that gift but if it's possible, but that's what pastors do every Sunday, right? Um, So if we're in a spot where we have those already existing, why not encourage people to read them? Now, some of them don't exist. My second argument, and I'm almost out of time. I am out of time. Uh, This is, I'll pick this up next time. It's, It's the incarnational argument. Jesus came to be like us so he could be understood by us. That's not the only reason, but in part, Jesus... Dwelt among us. He became like us. He got down in the nitty gritty of life. The the word made flesh was common and average. The Son of Man, nothing to look at. He was not remarkable or beautiful that we would comment on him. And I think our Bible translation should be the same way. Um, Even though we might like this Queen's English or this holy sounding, Jesus didn't look holy to the people. You know, the incarnate word did not look holy. He looked Common. And I think our Bible translation should take on that same flavor. All right. I've only said like 10% of the things I want to say, about 50% of the things that we will say by the end of next week. So we'll pick this back up and I'm happy to answer any questions. But thanks for tracking along.